2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright's thank you for listening. We're reminded daily how the pandemic has taken the lives of millions across the globe and has also claimed the livelihood of those who haven't suffered the disease. When we think about those battling on employment and surviving as gig workers, drag queens must be included, as 95% of their income is based on nightlife events. Ellosaurus Rex and Brigitte Bidet are two Atlanta queens who host the Wussy Magazine podcast Good Judy, we'll hear from them later in the program about providing a safe space for people in the LGBTQ community. First, Eli Smith is an extraordinary musician who honors a tradition of what he prefers to call old-time or down-home music. Most people would describe that style as folk music, and Eli Smith is highly acclaimed for his work as a banjo player with his band, the Downhill Strugglers, founder of the Brooklyn Folk Festival, songwriter, and curator of folk music. He joins us now via Zoom. Eli Smith, welcome to City Light.
1: Thank you, glad to be here, thank you.
2: Now, you are a folk musician who grew up in a very urban setting, Greenwich Village in New York City. What first drew you to the genre? Well, I remember
1: hearing folk music, or down-home music, as I like to say, back when I was a kid, as a teenager, on records at first, not live, but on uh, CDs and records that that I came upon. And I heard Mississippi John Hurt and Woody Guthrie. I loved their music very much. And it was unlike anything that I had heard on the radio or on television or from my friends uh, at that time. My brothers and my sisters are stranded on this road, a hot and dusty road that a million feet have trod. Rich man took my home and drove me from my door, and I ain't got no home in this world
3: anymore.
1: It spoke to me. It had some kind of human scale or some kind of truth that I guess I was looking for back at that time. And I was taken with it immediately, and it, it became uh, my life as a musician and, and, and as, a, as a producer.
2: Folk music as a genre is notoriously difficult to define, as my intro <laughs> referred to. What does the term folk music mean to you? Well, thank you
1: for that question. It is a very diverse genre and genres are a commercial designation anyway, that are part of the the music industry, which folk music in some ways represents itself as not being a part of. And so to me, folk music is, is your music. We are the folk and folk music is the music that is meaningful to you on a certain level. On another level, folk music is the people's history of music. A lot of people have heard of Howard Zinn's book, People's History of the United States. And if you really get into it, you'll find that folk music is the people's history of music. It's not the history of the commercial music world necessarily, although it's clearly related, but it's an alternative history and an alternative story of what music is uh, in this country and around the world. And it's a very grassroots story that deals with music that is created by and sustained by communities of people, whomever they may be. And that's what folk music is to me. Yeah.
2: And so within your definition or your vision of folk music, would the blues be included?
1: Yes, of course. Uh, I mean, blues music, of course, is connected to the early recording industry and uh, the mass culture But blues music, of course, emerged from communities, particularly African-American communities in the Deep
3: South. Have you ever looked over a mountain? One you ain't never seen? Have you ever looked over a mountain? A mountain you've never seen. Have you ever laid down in your bed and had one of them lonesome dreams?
1: But blues, once again, is a genre within popular music. And the reality is that things aren't neat they're not neatly divided into genres or into uh terms like the blues blues music is a part of rural african-american folk music going back into the early 20th century when blues music was defined but even in you know obviously into the 19th century and earlier as far back as you'd like to go and these are traditions that were carried on by people through history and folk music is strongly connected to history and to memory. And that's something that I try to do with the music that I produce, like at the Brooklyn Folk Festival and events like that is to give people a connection uh, to history and to memory, which is something I think we're sorely, sorely lacking in this, in this country, uh, sort of, we live in kind of an amnesiac country where everything is in, in the moment. And as a result, <laughs> no one has any idea what's going on.
2: Let's talk about your band, the Downhill Strugglers. How did you come up with the name?
1: Uh, yes. Well, there's a tradition, you might say, in uh, within the field of old-time string bands, which is what we are—old-time, so-called old-time music—is the kind of rural string band music that was played in the United States uh, going back hundreds of years. in the 1940s, it kind of changed and developed into into bluegrass music that a lot of people are familiar with. But old time music is the kind of rural American uh, string band folk music that was present all throughout the country going back, you know, hundreds of years. So there's a tradition of sort of funny names of old time string bands self effacing. So we thought the, the <laughs> downhill strugglers would be a, a, a funny name for our band sort of a wry, awry name.
2: Ah, he, there's the Brooklyn coming through. You get the irony. <laughs> well,
1: it's true. Although, the, you know, there's like uh, like one of our favorite bands is like called like the Skillet Lickers, you know, or the Fruit Jar Drinkers or, all, you know, all these f- like funny string
2: band names from uh, back when. For what you are describing about the old time string bands, I thought about the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Would they be included? Of course,
1: yeah, right. That, that, that would be a good example of a relatively contemporary string band who some of your listeners may be familiar with.
2: And they, of course, are reclaiming or perhaps restoring the African-American tradition.
1: You're right. The, in the, before recording kind of took off, string band music was very strong in the African-American community. And blues music, so-called blues music, was a subsection of African-American string band music and African-American folk music. It's all very related. It's, it, they're not separate things at all. And of course, the banjo is America's African instrument. The uh, banjo came here uh, in the minds, if not actually in the hands of uh, enslaved people that were forced to come here from Africa. And that's how the instrument uh, came here in the first place.
2: Eli, when did you take up banjo?
1: Well, I played guitar, you know, when I was a kid and, As I started to get more into the music, I was hearing banjo music. I think I started playing banjo when I was about 13 years old, living in downtown Manhattan there. But I had nobody to teach me.
2: So you taught yourself?
1: Initially, yeah. And then I I started to meet people as I got a little older and learned learned things from people here and there, including even Pete Seeger at a certain point when I was young. I got to know him a little bit in the last
2: few years of his life. Wow. How would you rate Steve Martin.
1: Oh, Steve Martin, you know, he's a fantastic um, banjo player, very, very, very talented blue, bluegrass banjo player. Not so much the old time styles, but of course, he, you know, it's funny because he's a celebrity comedian. And yet he's one of the banjo players that people are familiar with. Uh, and that's one way that the the music kind of gets out because it is so sort of suppressed or not covered by the music journalists that a lot of people aren't familiar with the music. But some of the ways that it gets out is through people like Steve Martin that play the banjo or through uh, popular films like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And then all of a sudden people get a taste of the music. But in general, it's really not represented in the media. It's very much an underground music movement.
2: You have collaborated with the Cohen brothers appearing on the soundtrack to Inside Lewin Davis. How did you come to work with them?
1: Yeah, that's right. That That was a pleasure. And that film is very deep. It represents sort of the, the plight of the folk singer uh, in a very, in a very real way. Uh, it was cool to get to, work with the Cohn brothers. I'm a big fan of their films. And we had one song uh, which I sing called The Roving Gambler on the soundtrack to the Inside Lewin Davis film. We used to play with a musician named John Cohen who was a founder of the string band, the New Lost City Ramblers, sort of the great string band from the middle of the 20th century with Mike Seeger and Tom Paley. And the Cohn brothers were fans I think of John Cohen, No Relation, because he was really one of the great, he was one of the great artists in the folk revival uh, that started out, you know, in the 20th century. John passed on uh, last year at the age of 87. He was our teacher and our friend as well as our bandmate. uh, And we certainly miss him very much. But I think the Cohen brothers wanted to include John in the film somehow. And it was really, I think, as a result of that, that, that we were made part of that film. I encourage everyone, all, your listeners, to check out the work of John Cohen. Uh, look him up as a photographer, a filmmaker, a musician, an uh, ethnologist, field recorder. Uh, just amazing body of work uh, by John Cohen.
2: You have a new single from the band, Let the Rich Go Bust. What do you address in this song?
1: Yes. Well, here we are. You know, at the uh, end of the Trump era, and in the midst of this devastating pandemic, and it's pretty challenging to address that in a song. What What could you even say?
3: 2016 on election day
0: Things jumped off in a hell of a way I'm not mad but my face is sore Wearing scuba gear at the
3: grocery store Jamie Dimon said it's Jesse James Running the bank beats robbing a train Can't even seem to get no gold They pay me like a kid but I'm getting old Ashes to ashes and dust to dust Ashes to ashes and dust to dust Ashes to ashes and dust to dust Let the poor man live and the rich go bust
1: yeah, we released this song called Let the Rich Go Bust uh, just recently, which addresses my experiences of the summer of Black Lives Matter uh, protests that um, I was taking part in here in New York, as well as the, the pandemic and the really, truly mad time that we're living through.
2: And it, we tried to do it. It's, it's in a real old-time string band style. Singer, songwriter, and banjo player Eli Smith. We'll be back with more of our conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright's. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with the Brooklyn-based musician, Eli Smith. He chronicles folk music as well as performs it. We've been talking about the encompassing history of American folk music. New York was the epicenter of the pandemic at the time you would otherwise have presented your Brooklyn Folk Festival. What did you end up doing? Did it become an online event?
1: That's right. Yeah, the uh, Brooklyn Folk Festival was scheduled for this past spring. Um, I'm the producer of that event, and you know it's three days of music with 40 or 50 bands and all kinds of things going on. We've been doing the festival for 12 years now. And of course, as you say, we had to reschedule it. We thought in vain that perhaps somehow the pandemic would be brought under control by the government, but that didn't happen. And so we did, of course, reschedule it as a online event, which took place last fall. And it was a challenge, you know, we didn't know how to produce a high quality online event. So it, it was a, definitely a learning experience and a challenge to sort of do anything during the pandemic um, and during all the, the madness that was, that was happening, um, but we did it and it was, it was beautiful. It came off well, and we were able to do it safely. And it's in fact, it's all archived. Um, since it was filmed and broadcast on the internet, it's all saved and if people look up the Brooklyn Folk Festival. They could watch the whole thing if they if they'd like to, and our signature contest uh, abs- that we have at the festival is an absurd contest called the banjo toss, where we see who can <laughs> <laughs> who can throw a banjo the farthest distance into the Gowanus Canal, this sort of body of water near here.
2: But wait, the musician in me thinks that's you know murder.
1: Well, it's you know it's like a sacrificial junk banjo that we have attached to a rope, and you kind of throw it as far as you can into the canal, and then we haul it back in on the rope. So it's sad that we had to sacrifice that one banjo, but <laughs> we hope that it was that it was worth it. But since we couldn't do that this year, I worked with a friend who's a video game designer, and we actually made a digital version of the Banjo Toss banjo throwing competition, which you can play online for free. So we, we made a Banjo Toss video game, and we all pitched in on it, all of us here at the Jalopy Theater that produces the festival. We all kind of worked on it. It's really, it's really fun. It's funny. So y'all could look, look that up too. The <laughs> banjo Toss, Banjo Throwing Competition video game. You can download it on your phone.
2: Yeah, what is the silver lining in an online folk festival? We talked about your new song that addresses the pandemic, the summer of Black Lives Matter, and events of the past year. Folk music historically has played an important role in times of political and social turmoil. Can you take us through some examples?
1: Yes, absolutely. In times of political unrest and economic turmoil, as you say, I think the idea of folk music sort of comes back in the, in the minds of the public. It happened in the 1930s into the World War II era with artists like Woody Guthrie and uh, Pete Seeger and others.
3: There's a better world to come in, don't you see? See, see. There's a better world to come in, don't you see? When we'll all be union and we'll all be free. There's a better world to come
1: in, don't you see? There's a better world a-comin' and don't you know, no, no
3: There's a better world come coming don't you know
1: And then it happened again during the worldwide social revolutions in the 1960s The idea of folk music came back
3: Come and gather around friends and I'll tell you a tale Of when the red iron our pits are the plenty Put the cardboard full of windows and old men on the benches Tell you now that the whole town is empty In the north end of town my own children have grown Well, I was raised on the other In the wee hours of youth my mother took sick And I was brought up by my brother The iron ore poured as the years passed the door The drag lines and shovels he was humming Till one day my brother failed to come home The same as my father before him.
1: I guess the reason for it is that in times like these that are very, very alienating and scary, people look for something that they perceive as authentic um, and something that's true or, you know, something that one could hold on to. And I I think that's a reason that, that the idea of folk music comes back during trying times. And it's important. I, I think popular music, pop music has its place, obviously, but it's not, it's not really the, the heart music. The, the heart music is, is something that's more intimate and, and more human scale. And that's what I look for in folk music. And I think that's something that can be helpful to people in terms of having something to hold on to in terms of their identity and in terms of the, the national, the culture. And I, that's something that I try to offer in my work.
2: So you see yourself as sort of a folk music apostle? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, sure. You know, Uh, I
1: mean, I'm just, uh, I'm, I just, I'm producing, I, I run a small record label here in New York, Jalopy Records. We put out, we put out records, have my band and the Brooklyn Folk Festival and the Washington Square Park Folk Festival in Greenwich Village that I also produce a smaller event. And yeah i mean i I think it's important to try to get the word out about the music that we're doing and because it's really a it's a grassroots it's an underground music movement and i uh, that's i think that's sorely needed in this country is a good is a good underground music movement A lot of the old underground music movements, you know, they eventually get co-opted and, and become part of the sort of, like, cultural power structure. It, it happened to punk, it happened to rap. But somehow the sort of old grassroots music just kind of keeps going in an underground way. And for people that are interested, they can they can tap into that.
2: Well, what traditional artists would you recommend, Eli, to people who might be interested in beginning to learn about folk music but don't know where to start.
1: Well, I, I loved Mississippi John Hurt and Woody Guthrie when I, when I was young and first getting into the music. I'd recommend them to everybody.
3: Make me down, pat it on your throat. Make me down, Make me a pallet down soft and low. Make me a pallet on your floor.
1: And of course, John Cohen's old band, the New Lost City Ramblers. I would recommend uh, the Anthology of American Folk Music on the Folkways Records label. That's a, just a fantastic compilation, Anthology of American Folk Music. It includes It includes Mississippi John Hurt, but also artists like Clarence Ashley, Uh, Memphis Jug Band. There's so many. It's it's really a once you get into it, it's a world of music that is very very rich.
2: And and are there some modern artists who are doing a great job? But in addition to yourself and the Downhill Strugglers, who else is carrying the torch that you might recommend to our listeners?
1: Well, there there are many, and it's a shame to leave people out, but. Two that I would recommend uh, immediately is Jerron Paxton, known as Blind Boy Paxton. He's a friend and and just a really amazing carrier of uh, a number of traditions in in American folk music. And then one of my favorite string bands in the country is uh, out of Arkansas called the Ozark Highballers, uh, <laughs> like a highball freight train, you know, the old the old freight trains. Oh, not right. the
2: bar drink. Right. <laughs> Creativity doesn't seem to be a problem with you, Eli. I mean, just looking over the past 10 months or so, and I see you have a new album called The Secret Museum of Mankind. That's a provocative title.
1: <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that.
2: What, what's on that album?
1: Well, there's a record collector here in New York named Pat Conti. And, and for many years, he has been amassing p- perhaps the world's great collection of 78 RPM records from around the world. 78 RPM records were the first type of records that were developed back in the teens and were issued uh, from then sort of through World War II. Uh, everybody should look up 78 RPM records. And, you know, after that came LPs, 45s and stuff like that. But Pat has the great collection of 78s from around the world. And back in the nineties, he curated a very, you know, well-respected and influential collection called the secret museum of mankind based on his collection. Pat is a friend uh, here and uh, he has restarted his series with the first new edition of the, in the series uh, you know, since the 1990s. And that's gonna be coming out uh, soon. People can look that up. Uh, the Secret Museum of Mankind, Guitars, Volume One, Prelude to Modern Styles. So if you wanna hear the roots of guitar music from around the world with really fantastic recordings by artists who you will never otherwise hear Uh, You can look that up. So that's a that's a a, uh, album of historical, you know, archival recordings. Obviously, it's not it's not living artists. It's uh, really well curated, historic, very rare uh, recordings.
2: Speaking of historic, a lot of the songs with your band sound like they could have been recorded in the 1930s. Would you talk about your recording process?
1: yes of course the medium of recording is is interesting how things are recorded and presented changes the way that we hear them and also uh, for my band the downhill strugglers as an old time string band we are looking back i mean it's called old time music for a reason it's 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 not a forward-looking music it's it's music that um, is looking backward into history and drawing from that very very much and, and in a very concerted way. So we love the old historic artists that are our predecessors and our heroes. And we're trying to sound like them, not, not in a, like we're trying to sound like them in a way that's authentic to us, obviously, but is also consistent with the tradition and the history of the music. So for example, we'll, we'll record using one microphone no overdubs no studio tricks what you are hearing is is our performance based on practicing and working on our music over a long period of time so it's in a way it's 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 just a natural sound and that's that's, that's what we're, we're going for yeah that that's that that's that's our sound both as in our performance and in the quality of recording that we're that we're using
2: singer songwriter and banjo player eli smith His band is The Downhill Strugglers. More information on this artist's songs and music we discussed can be found on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. The pandemic has taken the lives of millions across the globe and has also claimed the livelihood of those who haven't suffered the disease. When we think about those battling on employment and surviving as gig workers, drag queens must be included, as ninety five percent of their income was based on nightlife events. elisaurus Rex and Brigitte Bidet our two Atlanta queens who host the Wussy Magazine podcast, Good Judy. They zoom in to join us now. Welcome to City Lights.
0: Hello. Thank you so much.
2: Yes. Thank you for having us. We are thrilled to be here. Well, it is great to have you here. And I was hoping each of you could start by telling us How you got into drag. Sure. This is Ellasaurus here. I started drag
0: because I was looking for a community and an outlet for performance. Brigitte and I both come from the dance world. And I moved to for a dance company um, about 12 years ago. And I had these grand dreams of having a big dance company with a bunch of people. And then I had it. And then it wasn't so much fun. So I sort of wanted to scale back and I really wanted to perform as much as I could. And so I found drag as an avenue to perform a bunch, to have a, a lot of concepts and ideas uh, fleshed out in real life. And so Ellasaurus Rex was born. Hmm. Appreciate.
4: Similarly, um, I came from a dance background. I studied dance in college in Chicago. And I moved back and I thought I knew everything about the world and art. And so I was like, I'm going to be a radical performance artist. And then I found drag, which is kind of radical, but um, nowhere near where I envisioned myself. But it's kind of like the perfect way for me to be a performer, be flamboyant, be queer. And through that, I've been able to become like... Um, A community voice, I guess. So now we can engage people to vote in the elections and to fundraise for homeless queer youth and things like that. So it's what turned what was once kind of um, a hobby turned into a full on career and a way for me to give back and kind of be a better person, I guess. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) Advocacy, helping others and um, all the while engaging in your self-expression.
0: Yes, yes, definitely.
2: Tell us about the name Good Judy. Who decided on the name for your podcast? Well, we threw
0: around a bunch of names. I believe Relatively Successful was the first name we came up with. But we wanted to do something that was a little more specific to to queer uh, culture As you know, a friend of Judy is a reference that people used back in the day to acknowledge other people in the queer community because they were a friend of Judy, you know, Dorothy, Judy Garland. And so it's a name that we use to call our our best friends. They are our good Judys. So we wanted to have a playoff of words and also just acknowledge our friendship and our kinship as being drag sisters.
2: Oh, Now, the podcast was started by Wussy back in June. How would you describe Wussy Mag's publication? Wussy is amazing
4: because it is a voice for Southern queer artists specifically, but it has since branched out to become a more national or international publication, but Atlanta is such a great place for queer people and for queer media that we sort of found each other as artists. And John Dean was really like the driving force behind Wussy's inception. But it's grown to be a platform for so many people and also a physically printed you know, piece of media, which is dying out. So it's, it's a way to, like, not only preserve our Southern
2: queer voice, but to amplify it. What distinguishes your podcast from that of other queer pop culture podcasts?
0: Well, I think one thing that we wanted to make sure is that it wasn't just your average uh, queer podcast. So, yes, we are talking about uh, pop culture and... We do have a lot of drag queens on, and we are drag queens, but our lens is a little bit different. We are both very politically activated. We're both very community driven. On top of that, it's also we want everyone to feel like they're talking to their friends, so that we're not necessarily talking at you, but it's a conversation that um, that you can you know you can talk back to us um, you know when you're listening, and it feels like we are all just really good friends, and we're helping to create and continue community.
4: Yeah, I think we also offer like a really nice perspective in a way that in a world that's so wannabe woke culture and these intersections of identity politics. I know a lot of big words. I took a women's studies class one time, but (laughs) what it is is that we are so engaged in these intersectional communities that we are able to like share our experiences in order to relate with other people who are on the fringe or who are minorities without showboating or what's the word, virtue signaling. It's like we can actually offer our perspectives in a way that isn't just like kind of meeting diversity standards, which is happening a lot in media, I feel.
2: Now, you hand out a bad Judy award each week. What <laughs> qualifies someone to receive the bad Judy award? <laughs> so we we have
0: a good Judy of the week, but we also, the antithesis, we have the bad Judy. And that's someone who we feel like has done a bad job that week. Someone who has done, done something detrimental to our community and we feel like should be called out, not in a canceling way, but we are sort of calling attention to that behavior, um, you know, there's, a lot of them are public figures, uh, some politicians, but people who, um, you know, who just need to, we're not punishing them, but people who, who just need to be held accountable for their actions, and so it's a fun way of saying, hey, everyone out there listening, I know we gabbed and we gossiped for a few, But also uh, pay attention to this uh, because it's really important and it affects you.
2: But a bad Judy would not necessarily be a member of the queer community betraying the queer community, would it? If that's
4: what happened that week, then yes, they unfortunately received the title. No one is safe.
2: (laughs) 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 <laughs> but but I guess what I'm asking is a bad Judy does not have to have been a good Judy originally. Well,
4: here's the thing is that unfortunately, a lot of unfortunate things happen to the queer community and members of the queer community, specifically black trans lives, you know, as we're discussing that. So if any of those things or communities or parts of, our world are affected by the behavior of other people, we will call it out because not everything is sunshine and rainbows. Unfortunately, we don't want to turn into a chamber of echoes where we just hate the world, but there are some things that need to be called out and what better way to like form an opinion about something than through the
2: mouths of two fabulous drag Queens. (laughs) (laughs) Each week on the good Judy podcast, you talk with a different, person in the queer, drag, or trans community? How do you select your guests?
4: Well, that's another thing I was going to say about how the name came about, because Relatively Successful was a joke about how we have so many friends who are famous, or a little more famous than us, I should say, and (laughs) so hearing their stories can inspire other people. It inspires us, uh, for sure, so we We want to showcase not only the people that came up through our scene, who we literally saw go from zero to hero, but (laughs) also people who are doing amazing things and happen to be queer. Like Shamir is an amazing musician that actually lives in Las Vegas, but they were on the show because they've been on the cover of Wussy magazine, I believe so. It's through people that we've worked with and also through people that we want to connect with more and and share our platform to get other people in the know about what they're doing.
0: You know, we also have just put out a wish list and we've been so lucky that so many people have said yes. We don't really have a follow; We have more of a following now, but beginning we were using those connections that we've made from Wussy Mag people that um, we've booked and performed and Atlanta and so far we've gotten some really amazing people to to say yes and to be involved and we are just kind of shooting for the stars and people are are buying it they they love it and so we've been so grateful
2: would you tell us about the range of topics you address
4: yes we basically get a ton of information from social media and obviously mainstream media outlets but we discuss pop culture anything from like in Netflix to the potential World War Three will be discussed <laughs> on our show because again it it reminded me one time of when I was little and used to pick up the phone back when everyone had a house phone you could pick it up from the other room and listen to people's conversations mm-hmm. and that kind of is the vibe of the Good Judy podcast, because it's like you're catching up with your Good Judys and you're like, did you hear about that happen? And oh my God, this queen was doing this. So it is a way to connect with people. We were so isolated in 2020. It was also a way for us to be MCs again, because we host a lot of our shows. And so we're used to connecting with people through our oral expression.
0: (laughs) 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 Definitely. And it's also, we try to start every episode as genuinely as we possibly can with how are you? And sort of that feeds into the rest of the conversation. So some weeks we're really involved with with the news stories and some weeks we have to take a break and sort of uh, disappear into fantasy land and watch a bunch of Netflix or or. Uh, consume uh, a different type of media. So it varies differently. But especially the past three months has mostly been dedicated to Georgia, Georgia politics, the election, because that's what's in the forefront of, of our thinking right now.
2: Yeah. For someone who is not a part of the queer or drag community, how can the Good Judy podcast be a good resource
0: well, I talk about this a lot, being a black queer person from the South. I feel like I do have a perspective that sheds light on on what it means to to be that person right now. And I'm so lucky that I have a, a platform that uh, projects that voice out there. Cause it's so important. I feel like we have a platform. So it's so important to to be an advocate, not only for myself, for my community, but for other marginalized communities. And I hope that that people Get that from from listening we have such a specific perspective but i feel like it applies to several groups
2: mm-hmm. in december you both hosted a special drive-in drag show how did that
4: work well luckily through wussy we have done a couple drive-in drag shows which have been incredible it's kind of the most effective socially distanced version of drag that works in the pandemic which will hopefully be over soon but also we were working with a group called future coalition and they were looking to activate and engage the lgbtq plus community for the runoff specifically so in like one week, we planned this incredible drive-in drag show at Pullman Yards. They were awesome for hosting us. And we sold out completely. The form of applause is the car's honking. So we had the police (laughs) called on us (laughs) several times, noise complaints. But in the end, it was such a a great way to employ queer artists, drag queens, were getting paid virtually through Venmo tips and also being paid to perform. So not only is it this amazing queer expression, it's employing artists, performers. And I mean, I heard someone say that art, especially this year has become a public service and it shows how much we need our art, but also uh, how much the, the community really funds it and people supporting us is the only reason we're able to do what we do.
0: Right. So many people were so excited just to leave their house and, uh, and go to a performance and feel safe. And that's really important um, right now. We want, to, we want to be able to perform live. That's what we do. That's our livelihood. And we've gotten so much positive feedback from everyone who've come to the drive-in shows—the one in December—but also we had one in November and in October, and um, and they have have just loved it. Even though we were very far away, but it's just so nice to have that connection, even through a windshield.
2: Hmm. How have drag performers pivoted in other ways in order to supplement this? huge financial loss of income.
4: It's been kind of a mess. (laughs) Shout out to the Department of Labor for not having a working phone. But uh, I think (laughs) all gig workers were really screwed over by the unemployment. There was, you know, the brief federal assistance, which was great. But how do we unless you have a certain form of tax identification, you just don't get the support. And how are all these people supposed to just wake up and have a new career the next morning? It's kind of unfair and we are living in unprecedented times. So for a while people were doing, myself included, living room drag shows on our Instagram live. Then people got into the whole, basically make your own music video and stream the videos their performance but then the, it got so saturated that it became a wasteland that we all had to reinvent ourselves again but it's it's been exciting to find yourself performing in different ways and drag queens are so innovative that they will find a way to cross dress to a Britney Spears
0: song let me tell you yeah <laughs> it has been um Great, but not great. So there, in in certain ways, you know, I've learned a lot about producing videos and editing videos. But like Brigitte was saying, that time came and went. It we had about three months of actually making money from that content, and unfortunately, some of us have had to put ourselves at risk of performing, and they are out there in bars and venues that are not taking all those safety precautions, but. The drag performers need jobs and they need income, so it's been a unfortunate crossroads of trying to be super innovative and coming up with this content, and then people loving it for a little while, but then they're over it because bars have opened up, but they're not opened up in the in the correct way, and so it's it's put uh, a lot of people out of sorts, and we're still figuring it out. There is no really right or wrong answer. You have to take the precautions for yourself, and so yeah
2: <laughs> well, I'm curious about the feedback to your podcast because I would think it would be very positive from people in the l g b t q plus community in terms of having a safe space. What kind of response have you gotten?
4: It's been really great and we were doing it as a way to send out things for people to have in this lonely time. And it's created another kind of virtual space for people. And we have a Patreon that people can subscribe to for as little as, for as little as $1 a month, you can feed a drag queen, but. It's, it's
0: we, extra
4: $2. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we produce extra content for them and, and, people leave ratings on Apple Podcasts. So if you're listening and want to do that, hey. And we've also branched out, and Wussy has several other podcasts. So we're creating like our own little queer media
2: network, in a way. Drag queens and podcast hosts, Brigitte Bidet and Ellasaurus Rex. Their podcast, Good Judy, is available to stream on Apple Podcast and through the Wussy Mag website. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find our archive stories at wabe.org citylife. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.